morning, everybody. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to preach this morning, or I hope it will be a pleasure. Um, and I'm going to try to make what sounds like a pretty dry subject uh, a bit interesting. So migration and people movement sounds like kind of something you go to university to, uh, to hear a lecture on, but uh, it's going to be a bit more real than that, I hope. I, through a combination of uh, going surfing and being on Sunday school, haven't actually been at any of the previous two sermons that Stephen has given in this series, so I don't really have any idea what he's been talking about. Uh, so hopefully I'm somewhere on the right track, uh, or at least in the ballpark. The story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar is a really interesting one. Um, let me just summarise this for you. God promises kids to Sarah and Abraham, as numerous as the stars in the heavens. It's unbelievable. Abraham's 75 years old when that happens. Uh, I was talking about this with Rachel, my daughter, last night, and she said, that'd be like Nana Pam having a baby. Now, Nana Pam is, Julie, is Julie's grandmother, so Rachel's great-grandmother, and she's 89. And, um, and Sarah is pretty old when it actually all happens, and it's, a, it's pretty inconceivable. That's a... That was, I, that, that was spontaneous. That. She, God promises Sarah and Abraham children as numerous as stars in the heaven. And what happens? Nothing happens. For years, nothing happens. For ten years. Unsurprisingly, like most of us, when God says something and nothing happens, we decide to take matters into our own hands. That's just what Sarah and Abraham do. They grow impatient. And Sarah decides to sort of push things along. And she says, look, the Lord's kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps we can build a family through her. She's like, really? Did you have to, you know? I mean, it's easy to judge Sarah, isn't it? Because we look back on the story and go, it's all going to happen. But actually, most of us are just the same. Ten years is a long time to wait. Actually, it's, it's more than that in the end. It's 25 years. But it's, it's, uh, it's, um, after 10 years, they've gotten impatient. And you can actually understand that. So Hagar gets slept with. She doesn't have much say in it. She's just uh, picked up and used. Now, Hagar is a stranger in the land. She's Egyptian uh, and um, falling pregnant um, to Abraham. Naturally, a more intimate relationship develops between Abraham and Hagar. That's, just, that's completely understandable. Abraham feels protective towards her. She's carrying his child. And Sarah, unsurprisingly, hates this and gets jealous. Now, whose idea was it to give Hagar to Abraham? It was Sarah's. What happens? Sarah gets angry about it and she blames Abraham. Sarah said to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she's pregnant, she despises me. Well, I mean, I'm not having to go at Sarah, but it's kind of like, mm, this was your idea. Anyway, Abraham is a bit of a pansy. He doesn't really show much leadership. What does he do? He just washes his hands of it all. He says to her, oh, do as you see fit. Well, Sarah takes her anger out on Hagar, and Hagar runs away. And no one cares. No one cares about it. God cares. God gets involved and says to Hagar, go back. That's where I want you. I want you to be 
back there in the family. And the basic message here that God is saying to this group is, trust me, okay? I have a plan and I don't make mistakes. It's going to work out. You can't see the shape of this, but I've got it under control. And sure enough, 25 years later, Sarah has the son God promised. In spite of her disbelief, it all happens. And with this this great wave of joy and relief, God, thank you, you're amazing. With this great happiness, Sarah turns on Hagar again. It's like, nice one, Sarah. (laughs) You know, out of your joy and happiness, you actually decide to kick uh, uh, kick, uh, Hagar out again. And once again, Abraham, in a, in a stunning display of lack of leadership, of kind of weakness, goes, <laughs> yeah, okay. But God says, look, Abraham, I get it. This is causing disharmony in your family. I know that you're sort of not capable of stepping up to the mark here. Trust me, I'll sort it out. And what ha- happens? Hagar gets sent off again. Let, let me read it to you again. It's a beautiful and heartbreaking story. Early in the morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. Set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Abraham is sending her off to die. That's it. He's giving her some food and water to just help it last a bit longer. It's an awful story. And it's a very contemporary story. Um, as you know, because it's, it's been spoken about a few times, um, there's a, a colossal famine happening in Eastern Africa at the moment. And parents are doing exactly this, watching their children die. Now, any parent, it's Mother's Day, but that may, that may add, a, add a, a poignancy to it, none of us are going to stand by easily and see that happen. Your child, watching them die, When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch my son die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. And the boy was crying, and God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him a great nation. Now, let's just put that aside for one moment and um, link this into the whole immigration people movement thing. So to immigrate is to move in a planned fashion from one place to another. And we generally understand that when you do it in that way, when you immigrate, it's not urgent. There might be some urgency to it, but it's not, you're not fleeing. It's not like the, the guys are knocking down your door, burning down your house. And it complies, at least to a, in the major senses, uh, most senses, with the requirements, the legal requirements of, of the countries that you're going from and to. And there's many people in this, in this church who are immigrants to this country. So to be a migrant, then, is simply to be someone who has moved. It can be legal. It can be illegal. It can be forced. You can be an economic migrant. It can be voluntary or involuntary. You might be professional and you might be unskilled. And anyone who's been to Dubai knows that that country basically exists on migrant labour. Tens of thousands of Bangladeshis and Pakistanis and Filipinos are the engine, the workforce of that country. Unskilled labour 
pretty well in, in, uh, in awful conditions, living in awful conditions in that country. So people have always moved in search of new opportunities, in search of economic betterment. Um, sometimes it's been planned and sometimes less so, but there's nothing new about it. It's exactly what Abraham and Sarah were when they moved from Ur. They were migrants. The fact that God called them is, is kind of uh, just, just the, the impetus for it. There's nothing new about migration. What's new about it is the restrictions that people now face on trying to move. That's what's new. The laws that we put up, the quotas, the conditions, the fact that some people are welcome as migrants and that some aren't, that's what's new. So to be a refugee is a class of migrants, is to be a migrant or to be someone uh, seeking to migrate at least, is to be someone who has needed to leave home because of a real fear for the viability and sanctity of their life. Now, that's not the UNHCR definition. You can look it up if you want. I've used those words intentionally, viability and sanctity. If your life is no longer viable, if you can't make a living, you're not going to sit down and watch your children die. None of us are going to do that. Now, none of us face that reality, but there are tens of thousands, millions of people for whom life is no longer viable in their home countries. It's not viable. They can't, they're, they're, they're the wrong ethnic group. They're the wrong colour. They speak the wrong language. They're... Their dad or that they themselves were on the wrong side in a battle. They chose the wrong political party to support. People have long memories and that's coming back to haunt them. Their life isn't viable. Now, today they're called economic refugees as though that was somehow not valid. You know, the only reason for being a refugee is, is for other reasons. But, but if your life isn't viable, if you're going to starve, you move. Any one of us would do exactly the same. Some of you might have that might have been the, the, the arithmetic you did. All your life is no longer sacred, sanctified. Your life is not... The sanctity of your life, the holiness of your life, the worthwhileness of your life is no longer valued. It's not protected by the state or the people around you. It's not honoured. And that's, in fact, what Hagar faces, isn't it? Her life is no longer sanctified. She's sent out to die. No one's going to protect her. So that's, that's what it is to be a refugee. The viability and the sanctity of your life is no longer um, protected. And it's not possible to keep living in that place. I wonder what it would be like for us to really face that, to really think, uh, for the metrics of the society in which we're living to change. And that's happened. Societies that we thought were prosperous and well-governed and had the institutions of state. It's happened in our memory. It happened in Rwanda. It's happening now in South Sudan. Now, it is not and it can never be illegal to seek asylum, despite what you may have heard about illegals. Because to seek asylum is simply to ask for help and protection and that can't be criminalised. If your life is in danger, it's not illegal to seek help anywhere. Now, there's a process by which that question is answered as to whether your claim for protection is valid or not. And after that, you may be judged to be a person who is actually not in need of protection and can go home, or your claim might be accepted. That's, that's, a, that's a different process. The act of seeking asylum is not illegal, despite what the government may tell you. They've come here illegally. 
No, they're people asking for help because the viability and the sanctity of their life is no longer upheld. Let's return to the story of Hagar. As I said, Abraham and Sarah were migrants. God called Ur, uh, God called um, Abraham and uh, his family, which was large, from Ur to Haran to Shechem. And then they went on to Egypt um, some years later because there was a famine. But all of this was planned and organised and they travelled with their donkeys and camels and their tons of possessions and their servants, the people they had accumulated. Unusual language, isn't it, to accumulate people? Kind of, I guess they weren't, you know, they were, they were uh, the slaves and the servants. Um, and when they arrived in Egypt, they were, well, they practised a bit of deception, but nonetheless they were welcomed and continued to thrive. And when they left there, they left with power and wealth to go back to um, the Negev. Now, this story of migration is one we kind of find an acceptable story. Um, the migrants who come to Australia in an orderly fashion with wealth and skills, professions, yeah, you know, they're welcome. Hagar's story is the story of a migrant labourer, and it's a harder story for us to connect with. Hagar is a servant from another country. She's Egyptian. She has no real status. She is used when it suits Sarah and Abraham, and she is dumped when it suits them. She has no wealth to fall back on, no power. She has nothing to bargain with. Even her son is of no value. Think about that. If you were, if you were left with a child and you knew that you, know, you, you had nothing, then, then, then we would say, at least take my child. Protect him. Protect her. Abraham and Sarah want nothing to do with it. It's a callous action. Even her child, Abraham's own son, is of no value and they are sent out to die. Well, she's taken back in because God intervenes uh, in the first instance. But later, she's dumped again. Hagar and her child, I think, meet the definition of a refugee. One needing refuge, one needing safety. And her refuge, in the end, is God. And uh, Hagar, for those of you who are studies of languages, you'll know it's a contemporary Arabic word. H-J-R is the root form, the three-letter root from which we get the term mahajirin, a refugee, or to uh, the, the verb to seek refuge. Um, uh, hijra, to flee. Um, it's... Uh, it's why, why the organisation Hagar, which some of you will have heard of, exists. Um, it, and it means, broadly, refuge. So her name reflects what she found in God. Her refuge is God. It is he who saves her. He has compassion on her and her son, Ishmael. What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up, taken by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And God o opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. God doesn't judge Hagar, doesn't, doesn't punish her, doesn't see her as anything other than a victim who needs saving. And God is with her and he is with the boy.
plan that went wrong is still a plan in which God is present. Why? Because that's the character of God. And it's reflected consistently throughout Scripture. You just do a search of the Bible for refuge or stranger, and there are countless admonishments, commands, and instructions as to how we should treat the stranger, the migrant. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who journeys with you as the native amongst you, and you shall love him as yourself. You shall love him as yourself. It's not one law for yourselves, for us, and another law for the migrants or the immigrants or the refugees. We get Medicare benefits, they don't. We have the right to work, they don't. That's not how God sees it. That's not a society after the character of God. A society, a community built after the character of God says there is one law. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. Don't forget that. I am the Lord your God. Don't forget who I am either. I love that. That's from Leviticus, the book of the law. And I could go on. I'll just give you one more. There shall be one law for the native and the stranger who sojourns amongst you. One law. Exodus 12. That's something we need to think about. So what does all this mean? How do we think about this? Well, here's a couple of sort of cold hard facts. Um, in, in my job in TIA, we recently looked at a document called Megatrends, which was the product of about 15 global think tanks, uh, from the UN to um, the National Security Agency of America to some universities. Um, and they, all, they were all asked the question of what are the big trends of the next 30 to 50 years? And uh, the number, the sort of top five, of, of which the top two were climate change, and migration. Uh, and there was others there. It's a really interesting document to read. There are, will be more and more people moving, both planned and unplanned. Uh, planned movements will be by those who can afford it as they look around and make a sober assessment that the chances and opportunities afforded them in their places of origin are reducing. And lots of people have come to Australia from South Africa and from Zimbabwe in, in the last you know, 15, 20 years as they looked around and made an assessment. I'm not judging that assessment one way or the other, but that's, that's, people have, have done that. People have done that from Afghanistan, from Iraq, Iran. They've looked around and gone, the future here is not one I want to be in anymore. That's not an easy decision to take. Migration is a growing pattern. It's an inevitable outcome of labour laws and conditions that impoverish people. It's of conflicts. Uh, it's an outcome of conflicts that are perhaps locally born but have been inflamed by the aggression and the interferences of other nations. You think of Syria today. It's a local conflict inflamed and exacerbated by the USA, by Russia, by Turkey, by others getting involved. Iraq's another example. Afghanistan's another example. It's an outcome of persecution of the powerless by the powerful and of enduring ethnic divisions, 
of displacements created by changes in our climate and caused by, uh, caused by the high consumption, high waste lifestyle that we enjoy. And finally, all of this, 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 all of this, all of these reasons have their origin in a God-given sense of injustice. It is a God-given sense of injustice as people look around and say, you have what we don't have, and that's not fair. And that's a God-given sense of injustice. Now, there might be all kinds of reasons, and I've just listed some of them, but at the bottom of it, people look and go, I didn't choose to be born here in a country that's six foot above the ocean. I'm thinking of Kiribati, as some of you will know, that's rapidly going underwater. I didn't choose to be born here in Somalia or Sudan. I didn't choose this. I might have contributed to it in some way, but I'm now suffering, me and my family. And any one of us would do the same. Some of you have. It's not going to go away. Um, it's going to be a major, the major issue of the next 50 years, migration of peoples. And our government, I think, and many governments are wrong-headed in simply believing that better policing, policing or better border control will insulate us from this or sending negative messages about what your life's going to be like if you come to Australia. There's a particularly odious campaign a few years ago where the government, I don't know, it was, it was pretty well hidden from the Australian public, but messaging was sent out to countries in Asia, particularly Afghanistan, saying, if you come to Australia by boat, you'll probably be eaten by a shark on the way or a crocodile. And there was pictures of this. There was pictures of sharks and crocodiles kind of suggesting that basically to come here by boat, a boat-eating crocodile will sink the boat and the sharks will finish you off. Now, not only is that just fiction, but it's very odious. And that's not going to stop people. So what do we do? What do we do with this huge and defining dynamic that will characterise the next 50 years? Well, the first thing, as I look around, is to say this. Most of you are not going to have to deal with it because we're going to be, you know, pushing Zimmer frames. Our, 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 um, our impetus in this debate is waning. It's going to be our kids who deal with this. If you're under 30, it'll face you. But if you're over 30, we're, just, we're kind of the vanguard in a sense. Is that the right use of the word vanguard? Um, it's our kids who are going to face this. And so we need to be having conversations with them about what they think about it. If Sarah represents the anger and rejection of those needing care, seeking refuge, and I think she does, and if Abraham represents indifference, you know, the sort of silent majority who go, oh, I don't know, it's, it's too difficult to think about, let someone else deal with the problem and I think he does represent that indifference, then it is from God that we see the model of what our behaviour needs to be. God doesn't judge Hagar. He cares for her. He doesn't look at her history. He's not interested in that. He looks at her future. And that's the key. When we think about refugees coming here, we think, oh, but what if they're terrorists or criminals? Well, maybe. I'm not saying you can just uh, not think about that at all. But the best way to win someone to your cause, to your country,
country is to show love and care for them. Hagar might not have been reconciled to God before he saved her, but you can bet she was reconciled after. Did she have good things to say about God when she was sitting in the desert? Probably not. But after he reaches down and saves her, she's got a lot of good stories to tell. And there's a key in there for how we act. So a question that inevitably arises here, and it's probably in your minds, is, well, you know, sure, but if we just accept everyone who wants to come to Australia, the country's going to be packed, right? Maybe we've already reached the carrying capacity. We don't have enough water or land or we're not fertile enough. The country's going to be packed. Our country will change. I, yeah, maybe. I don't think it's helpful to argue from extremes. It's never that helpful to argue from extremes. We have to kind of take a balanced view in this. The total number of people seeking refuge, so not, not those who came un, under migration programs, but the total number of those seeking refuge in Australia over the last 15 years would be less than or is less than 200,000. That's not very many people. We take 100,000 a year. I think it's actually more than that. We take 160,000 a year, I think, in our migration program. So if you took all the refugees who've applied for asylum here or have come here on little leaky boats in the last 15 years, it's less than 200,000. At the peak, it was around 10,000 a year. And that was about five years ago before we got really nasty. We are not talking huge numbers. Now, maybe that number would double or treble if we had a more open and welcoming view. Maybe it would. Well, that might be okay. And it... And it, and it I'm not actually sure that, though, that that's the right way to approach the question because it's happening anyway. People are moving anyway. And um, we, in a sense, don't have the right to say no. We are strangers in this land just like they are strangers. I'll come back to that. So I don't think it's helpful to argue from extremes. I think we are called to give a compassionate response modelled after God's response. But a compassionate response doesn't mean an unthinking response. It doesn't mean there's no conditions whatsoever. But the, the overriding value here has to be compassion. Um, at the 8.30 service, we sang a hymn uh, which had these words in it. For the love of God is broader than the measures of man's mind. And we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. Are we making God's love narrower than it is? I think we do. I think a country, a society, a community modelled after God's character has a lot more love in it than we allow for. Um, so our response needs to be compassionate. It also needs to be clever. Most people actually don't want to move. I was in Somalia earlier in the year and I've been in some hard countries and let me tell you, as I drove around Somalia, I thought, God, I'm glad I wasn't born here. It was a tough place. But the Somalis loved it. It's their home. They don't want to leave. It might look like a barren, barren forbidding landscape to me, but for most of them, it's their home. And the fact that I couldn't really easily conceive of living there and being happy doesn't mean they weren't. Most people don't want to leave. So a clever response involves helping people stay where they are for as long as possible. 
And that means doing stuff about conflicts, doing stuff about consumption, doing stuff about the climate. It means us doing stuff. Not being like Abraham and going, oh, too hard to think about. Our response needs to be compassionate and it needs to be clever. And lastly, I'm going to challenge you to be curious. What I mean by that is asking questions, clever questions. I have a sticker on my car that says um, United Nations High Commission for Refugees. When I used to work with the UN, I put a few stickers in my pocket. And I have it there because it's, a, um, it's just a statement. It doesn't say welcome refugees. It doesn't say get lost refugees. It's actually not that word, but uh, it, you know, it's, a, it's, um, it's just a neutral sort of statement. And it provokes discussion. Sometimes it provokes anger. Um, I remember being across the road watching a guy come up to my car, seeing him seeing that sticker, looking around and proceeding to urinate on, on my car. Um, so sometimes it provokes a hostile response. Um, and I, I remember a conversation with a guy who saw it and he said, oh, bloody refugees, what do you want to work with them? What do you want to, you know, we don't want any more here. Now, it was my natural reaction to answer combatively and go, no, that's not right. But I held myself back and was curious. And I said, oh, tell me what, what do you mean? And this long and slightly incoherent discussion, or it wasn't, I mean, he was slightly incoherent, but this long discussion or this long kind of diatribe emerged. And he said, oh, they're coming and taking jobs and I've had them, you know, steal and, you know, this happened and that happened. And I tried to be patient and listen and reflect. And what emerged was, in fact, that his business was going under. And it really had nothing to do with refugees. And in fact, he actually had some friends who were refugees, and he had in fact employed some in his business. And they were good. What had happened was, he had bought the prevailing scapegoating of our society, which sees people, particularly people from Muslim backgrounds, as the source of our troubles. He just bought it. And all he needed to do was have someone listen to him, to, un, to diffuse it, to take the anger out of it, to take the heat out of it. Now, we need to do that. We need to help refocus the debate accurately um, by asking curious questions of people. So when you hear people say stuff, not to react, which is, can be our discussion, uh, our, our, our default position, and not to... Um, Ignore it, which is what Abraham did, but to ask questions of people to help them see compassion because that is there. It's not that hard to bring out in people. It's not that hard to bring it out. And I think the more we do that, the more we create a community built after the character of God. The final word comes from Hebrews uh, where it says... We are all strangers and foreigners in this land, looking for a country not our own. We cannot hold too tightly onto this. Firstly, we didn't work for it, really. We just sort of inherited it by virtue of being born here or coming here. We're the beneficiaries of, of it, but it's not ours. It's not ours to keep. This isn't where we end. This isn't the end of our story. There's something much better ahead. 
And somehow we have to take that and have that in our mind. That this isn't the end of the story that we have to hold on to selfishly. We can be generous. There's something better coming. Amen.